as the kids are moving to the back, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be spending the bulk of our time in verses 11 through 13. Uh, so you can sort of zero in on that passage. Um, let me just try to uh, orient us to, to where we are and what we're trying to do uh, this morning. Of course, we're going through a series on the church, trying to discern from Scripture uh, who and what the church is, how the church comes into existence. Uh, we're looking, uh, we started to look last week and will this morning and next week at uh, three things that characterize what the church does. So if you were to frame it as a question, what does the church do? Last week we said or we saw in Scripture that the church gathers, that one of the defining features and characteristics of the church, the very term church in the New Testament, ecclesia, means an assembly. And so the church is the assembly of God's people, and assemblies have a primary responsibility to assemble. That's what assemblies do. And that is not an accident that the church is referred to as an assembly. And one of the things that God intends is for His people to, rag, to, regularly, to regularly gather together. There it is. To regularly gather together uh, under the preaching and teaching of His Word, uh, to speak His Word, to sing His Word, and to see His Word. And then this morning what we're going to look at is another aspect of what the church does, and we're just going to simply answer that by saying that the church grows, or to make it a little bit more personal, if you ask the question, what does the church do, you can say it in, in terms of the first person plural, we grow. And so we want to look at a unique section in the New Testament where Paul talks about the church growing or what the intent is behind that growth, what characterizes growth, how it's done, and hopefully in doing that be able to see what it is that God is doing even here at a church like Edgewood to bring about or to replicate this pattern that we see in Ephesians 4 here in our midst. All right. So bow with me in prayer. Let me commit this time to the Lord, and then we'll work our way through the Scriptures. Father, how wise you are to create and to bring into existence out of nothing all that there is and all that we see, even those things that we don't see, you have created. How wise you are to order those things in such a way that it gives witness to your power and your might and your glory. We thank you that one of the ways that we see your wisdom and your might is in the way that you have created a people for yourself. And that the clearest expression of that is the new people that you have created through the death and the resurrection of your son Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us, Father, as we spend time in your word this morning to see that one of the things that you are doing, one of the things that you intend to do, is to display your glory most clearly and in a profound way through your church, through individual churches even, in a way that will remind us that we belong to you, in a way, in a way that will bear witness to the world that there is a God who exists and who is bringing all things back into order out of the chaos in which we find ourselves. We pray this so that you would be glorified, so that Christ would be exalted, and so that the evidence of the work of your Spirit would be in our midst. Amen. 
Before we start, let me, uh, let me start this way. I'm actually going to do sort of a, a run-up to a theme that starts in Ephesians 1 that I think is essential to appreciating some of the things that Paul says about how a church grows in chapter 4. So if you happen to have your notes on you, the, the very first line that we have before we actually get to the three points that we're going to try to work, work out from Ephesians 4, we just have a simple statement that the church grows to display the fullness of Christ. The church grows to display the fullness of Christ. All right, so, so let me try to unpack a little bit what that means, and, and in doing that, try to show the connection between the fullness of Christ and a growing church. If you turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul makes a profound statement in, in Ephesians 1.10. I'm reading from the New American Standard, so it may sound a little bit different from the version that you have. But in Ephesians 1.10, Paul says... That what God is doing in Christ is with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Now, it, again, depending on your English translation, that may be more or less convoluted. Let me try to just in, in simple, straightforward terms say what Paul is getting at there is... In, as he's writing to these Ephesians Christians, he's saying the goal of everything, the goal of human history, the goal of, that, of everything that God is doing in this world can be summed up in this way, that God is bringing everything that exists back into right order and right relationship to Jesus Christ. The, the problem that we see in this world with nature, with human nature, and with every other aspect of this existence that we know and experience is that it is broken and fallen and in large degree due to our rebellion from our Creator. But God in His mercy and grace has not left His people or his creation to languish, but has determined that through an extravagant act of grace and mercy, namely the offering, the sacrifice of his own son, he is going to rework, turn backwards all of the undoing, all of the dying, all of the chaos that our sin has brought on this world and bring it back into harmony with the rightful ruler and king, which is Christ himself. Now, th this is what all of the cosmos is moving towards, being rightly ordered to its creator. The challenge, though, is that as we look at the world, even as we look at ourselves, it is oftentimes very hard to believe that that actually is taking place, that God is already in the work of bringing things back into harmony with himself and with his will. That a world that is falling apart is being put back together. That rebels who hate God are being reconciled to their God so that they not only love him, but they love their fellow enemies. But Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 1, at the end of the chapter, 
Look at verses 22 and 23. After saying that through the resurrection and ascension that God has placed Christ on the throne to rule and to reign with all authority, both in this age and in the age to come, Paul says in 122 and 23, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here, here's how I think those two, 110 and 122 and 23, fit together. God's overall plan for this entire created universe is to be brought back in harmony with its creator, with, through the Son, Jesus Christ. God is already at work doing that, and the evidence that we have that God is doing that is the church. The church uniquely stands in the middle of this broken, mixed-up, chaotic creation as a testimony to the fact that God has not abandoned His creation, that God has not abandoned the universe, that God has not abandoned humanity, and in fact that God is gathering them back to Himself in a rightly ordered relationship with Him that is filled with love and joy and peace and harmony. And the way that you see that is by coming and seeing the church. The church is where you see the fullness of the character of Jesus Christ. And you say, what I see with a gathered church is something like what Christ is or what Christ is doing. So, when the church gathers and the church comes together, a church is to maintain the unity, the bond of peace, because the creation itself is being brought back to peaceable coexistence with its creator and with each particular element that is created. And the way that you see that is by people peaceably living together as Christ's body. You see something of the character of the ruler of the universe by experiencing his character in his people, love in the church, peace, harmony in the church, self-sacrificing love in the church. All that God is doing in the world, he is given a glimpse of what that last final ordering and peace and harmony is going to be like in the way that he brings the church together to experience peace and harmony among one another. Therefore, because the church is meant to display the work that God is doing and what the ultimate hope of the universe is, that the universe will become like us in our union together and with the Lord, God has committed Himself to making sure that the church actually lives out that example and that witness. And what Paul will go on to say 
is that as I think about you Ephesian Christians, and by extension, as I think about Christians in general, what I'm asking for, what I'm praying for, what I'm hoping for is that God continues to fill you with the fullness of Christ so that you will put His glory on display and give an indication of the fullness that's going to come when Jesus is actually ruling and reigning in a fixed universe. So he says at the end of chapter 1, verse 23, that the church is the body of Christ. The church is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. As as Paul is getting towards the end of chapter 3, skip down to verse 18, Paul prays, For these Ephesians, I pray that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. There it is. The church is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Therefore, Paul says, I'm praying that you become full. And then in the passage that we have today in 4.11 through 13, notice that the growth that Paul envisions in the church is leading to the ultimate goal of fullness in Christ. So if you skip down to verse 13, Ephesians 4.13, Paul says that this growth of the body is to take place, is to happen, is to continue until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Here's the the dilemma. The church has been created to put the fullness of Christ on display. What does that mean? Well, in part, I think it means everything that Christ is, everything that Christ has, the church is supposed to reflect that or share that. So, the wisdom of Christ. The church ought to have and live by and exhibit the wisdom of Christ. Because if Christ is full of wisdom and we are the fullness of Christ, we ought to be full of His wisdom. If Christ is full of love and we are the fullness of Christ, we ought to be full of love. If Christ is full of beauty, if He is full of gentleness, if He is full of uh, authority and rightful rule and generosity, and we are the fullness of Christ together, then we ought to demonstrate these things. But, but, we all know that when we look around, that oftentimes what we don't see is a group of people who are exhibiting the fullness of Christ. Oftentimes it's much easier for us to see us displaying a deficiency in the fullness of Christ. Right? We see where we lack. We see what we don't have. We see where we've made mistakes. And there is truth to the fact that on the one hand, we are already the fullness of Christ and not yet fully full. Otherwise, Paul would not pray that we would be filled. 
Otherwise, Paul would not hold up as the end goal of what we're doing here that I want you to grow until you get to the fullness of Christ. If we were already full, he wouldn't have to say, until you get to the fullness of Christ. So, just by way of illustration, I think the picture, if, if you're a person who, who deals in images, okay, I think the picture here is of the little preschool boy that goes, or the preschool girl that goes and grabs mom or dad's clothes. And he puts dad's shirt on and his pants and shoes, and he comes out, and he looks like the worst invention of a dwarf you've ever seen in your life, right? He's got three feet worth of material pooling around his feet. He has to take two steps before his foot gets to the end of the shoe to move it for another step. You can't see his hands because the shirt is just engulfing his upper body, right? He is, in one respect, sort of the image of his father. He already is. But while he is already in the image of his father, he's not yet imaging his father in the way that he will when he's fully grown. Do you see? So there's coming a day when, if he went back into dad's closet and he pulled out the by now far outdated shirts and pants and shoes and so on and so forth, he could put them on and he would fit. He would look more like dad. That's what's going on here. We've been brought into union with Christ. We have a new nature that has been given to us by the work of the Holy Spirit, but our nature, just like a set of clothes, our nature has to be nurtured in the body of Christ in the church. We are growing into the fullness of Christ so that in all of the attributes that Christ displays uniquely, we are filling that pattern out. And I think what Paul does now in 4.11 through 13 is he basically goes and he says, now how does that happen? How do people who do not measure up to Christ how do they get to a point where they do measure up to Christ? And listen to what Paul says. So skip down in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Paul says that Christ gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Here's how it works, and this is what you have in the outline in your notes. God intends for His church, the body of Christ, to grow to display the full glory of God Himself the full glory of God Himself that is seen and witnessed to by the Son, now is being given witness to by the body of the Son, His church. And in order to cause these little spiritually stunted or spiritually immature or spiritually infantile, newbie, Christ-like creatures to grow to the point where they look more like Christ, 
God sets about a pattern, a long, deliberate process by which He grows them up together. And the way that it happens is this. It starts with, number one, it starts with the work of the Word. The work of the Word then, number two, sets His people to work to build and to fix the body. And then number three, as the body is being built up, what we're being built up to is a more fuller image and display of Christ Himself. Very simple, very straightforward. God God grows us. He draws us together to grow us. And the way that He does that is He starts with the work of His Word to move His people to work on the body so that the body is built up to the fullness of Christ. So go back to Ephesians 4, chapter 11. Paul is talking about the fact that when Jesus rose and ascended to the heavens, that as a victor, He shared the spoils of war by giving gifts to His people. And some of the gifts that Paul cites are found in 4.11. He gave gifts to men. He gave differing gifts to men. In 4.11, he gave some as apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Christ gives word workers to His church as a gift. Notice that the the common feature between these individuals that Paul has listed in 4.11, when you talk about an apostle or a prophet or an evangelist or a pastor or teacher, all of these individuals have their primary responsibility in the ministry, the exercise of God's Word. Apostles and prophets go out and they proclaim it. Pastors, shepherd, they feed the flock with God's Word. That's, that's what these people do. And it's through the ministry of the Word that Paul says God's people are equipped to do the work that God has called them to do. That means that to the extent that Edgewood as a church body gathers together on a regular basis and sits under the hearing, the authority, the preaching, the teaching of God's Word, one of the things that's happening as we sit under God's Word and as we listen, we are being equipped, we are being given skills and tools to do the work that God has called us to do. You're here because God has work for you to do. You listen to the Word on a Sunday morning or in a Bible study or in a small group setting. You hear the Word because God intends for His Word to take root in your heart and mind and change it in such a way that you begin to live differently. You start to see how God intends for all things to be brought back under the right rule of Jesus Christ. And you say, if that's what His goal is, that must be what my goal is too. How can I make that happen in very small but significant ways? 
You see what God sets his mind on. You see what God loves. You see what God hates. And you are changed by the Word of God to love the things that He loves, to hate the things that He hates, so that the things that you pursue or the things that you reject are more in line with the will and the character of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, if you hold your place here in Ephesians, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The danger that exists is that we oftentimes can pit deep, methodical study of Scripture against the more practical elements of the Christian life, right? Like what happens on Sunday morning, that is, well, in the singing part, that's sort of, yeah, that's uplifting, that sort of gets my heart going, but man, I tell you, when we get to the Word, the preaching, that's just all cerebral, and when you hear cerebral, some of you start to nod off, right? If only I would hear something more practical. If only I could hear a three-step plan to make my marriage better, to make my kids more well-behaved, to cause me to be successful in the workplace. Then I would really be living the Christian life, and I would be shining the light of Jesus wherever I go. Don't fall for that thinking. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 to Timothy. Paul says, all Scripture is inspired by God, is God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God or the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Word is what God uses to give us new birth. The Word is what God uses to grow us and to mature us. The Word is what God uses to keep us in the faith. The Word is what God uses to convict us when we are wrong, to drive us to repentance, to cause us to seek forgiveness from someone that we have wronged. The Word does all these things, and the Word, Paul says, in just a blanket statement, the Word equips God's people for every good work. Every good work. What counts as a good work? Right, that's, that's the million-dollar question a lot of times. Quips us for every good work, and I begin to think, well, every good work means teaching a Sunday school class, going on the mission field, selling my house and living in a van down by the river. That's what good works are. It's not nearly so complicated. Now, that may be what some of those good works are, but it's not nearly so complicated. 
So, so let's make the transition between point one and point two. It's the church gathering together to hear the Word and the Word taking root in our hearts and minds that changes us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ so that as we're changed into His image by His Word, we live more like Christ. And Paul says that God has given these laborers in the Word as a gift to the church so that the saints would be equipped to do the work of the ministry. And he says elsewhere that the Word equips us for every good work. So what is the work that the saints are supposed to do? Turn to Romans 12. Look at verses 6 through 8, Romans 12, 6 through 8. Paul says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Just pull just a, a handful of those out there. Good works, doing the work of the ministry, can be something as simple as verse 8, showing mercy to someone with cheerfulness. Listen, being equipped to do the work of the ministry means that as God's Word takes root in your heart and mind, sometimes the way that you do the work of the ministry is when you see someone seated in the pew or in the hallway or in the bathroom and they're crying for who knows whatever reason and you do the work of the ministry just by saying, what's wrong? Can I help you? Or listening to the person talk about this hellish week that they've just had, and you don't try to fix things, you just listen and you comfort them, and you do so with a sense that God is going to be able to provide for what they need. That's doing the work of the ministry. You don't have to go to a monastery. You don't have to live off of bread and water. Sometimes doing the work of the ministry can be encouraging someone by writing them a note, sending them an email, shooting them a text, giving them a call on the phone, inviting them over on the lunch break to get up for coffee so that you can check in and see how they're doing. That's the work of the ministry. Look, turn to Acts. Acts chapter 11, verses 22 through 24. The church is growing, it's expanding. 
It reaches into a new city, a new town, and Luke tells us in Acts 11.22 that the news about these new Christians reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Notice verse 24, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Do you see that? Barnabas goes to other Christians. He sees evidence of the fact that God is working in this new group of Christians, and he rejoices over the work that God has done. He expresses his happiness with these other Christians. He shares in that joint excitement with them, and that, as simple as what that is, is attributed to the fact that he was full of the Holy Spirit. We're not told that he goes in and he begins laying hands on people or causing people to levitate or fall out in the aisles because he was a great man of God. No, he's a great man of God, and because the Word of God is dwelling richly in him, he goes to these new Christians and he encourages them. Elsewhere in the New Testament... Paul will say things like, God has redeemed a people for his own possession, and he has made them to be zealous for good works. Again, just a very broad, almost, almost painfully ambiguous statement. Zealous for what kind of good works? That's in Titus. Earlier, he says, using young women as an example, that older women and younger women ought to relate to each other in such a way so that the older women will be able to teach the younger women how to do things like love their husbands and care for their children. Do you think that counts as a good work? Certainly it does. Giving someone a meal counts as a good work. Jesus says when he's giving the parable about what it's going to be like at the end of the age. Many people are going to come to me, and I'm going to say to one group, come, enter into the joy of your master. For when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick and in prison, you visited me. Lord, when did we ever do that? I tell you the truth, to the extent that you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Giving someone a drink of water when they're outside working counts as a good work. Getting someone from the parking lot into the church building counts as a good work. Young people, helping older members of the congregation by giving them a ride, walking them out to a car, making sure they have what they need, that counts as a good work that pleases the Lord and demonstrates the genuineness of your faith. Anyone can do that. You don't have to be a super saint to be able to do these basic, simple things. But Paul says in in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, that that's the way that the church gives evidence to the fact that it's being made more like Christ because it does the sorts of things that Christ would do if he were in our midst physically.
So all that we do in our time in the Word ultimately needs to draw us further and deeper into the character of God so that we can together live and work out that character to show that we really do belong to God and that we're His people. And the way that this begins to take root as you begin to show kindness and grace through acts of service, through acts of ministry, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, encouraging, supporting, warning, pleading, as you do these things, the church builds up, becomes more and more like Christ. When do, we, when do we get to rest? When are we at the end of that work of building the church up? Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. As gifted individuals labor in the Word, verse 11 and they bring the Word to bear on the hearts and minds of God's people. God's people are equipped to do the work of service, the work of the ministry. Verse 12, they do that work with the goal or the intention that they build up the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And that is what it means to be a mature man and to meet the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. When does that happen, by the way? When, when, do, we, when do we get to verse 13? When is the until we all attain to the unity of the faith? I'll give you a real, real quick hint. It ain't any time, well, no, it may be soon. It's not in this lifetime as we know it. I almost slipped up. It could be soon. I don't know. Right? But the, the only point in time at which we actually finally enter into that one true unity of faith, where we are, where God's people really are like Christ, is when we finally see Him. That's what John says, right? We don't know yet what we will be, but we know this, that when we see Him, then we'll be like Him. And what Paul is indicating here is, is that the fullness of the glory and the beauty of Christ is already at work in the church as the members of the church bring to bear the character of Christ on one another. It's almost like we are right now in the process of being prepared for the greatest culture shock that the world has ever seen or will ever experience. He is already changing us, moving us toward that goal, but that goal is not going to be complete until we are actually with the Lord, which means the church grows and doesn't stop growing until the church is with Christ. So every single Sunday that we gather together, or every time that you meet up with another church member, 
Every time that you go, every opportunity that you have to do that is another step in that process by which you are growing together into the likeness of Christ. And listen, let me draw attention to one of the things, again, that is so easy for us to pass over. In verse 13, who is it that attains to the unity of the faith? We all attain to the unity of the faith. Skip ahead just a little bit more. Look at verse 15. Paul says, but speaking the truth in love, we, all of us, are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The growth that Paul has in mind here is not individual growth. Not in the immediate context, at least. Now, there is individual growth. We all grow in Christ-likeness individually. But what Paul is talking about here is the reason that the Lord has brought us together is so that we all together grow up into Christ-likeness. And notice the way that Paul, by the time he gets to verses 15 and 16, Paul actually gives us the idea or the suggestion that in order for all of us to grow up into Christ-likeness, we need every single one of us doing Christ-like things. Every member of the body is necessary to complete the picture and the fullness of Jesus Christ. Every member. Listen, one of the reasons that it takes every member to display the fullness of Christ is because no one person can perfectly image Christ by himself or herself. Right? Here's, the, here's one of, again, the many dangers that come in us thinking that we can go through and have a healthy Christian life and make the church optional is because we have bought into the idea that, that the Christian faith is more of this individual, privatized, personal sort of thing. I can grow in the fullness of Christ perfectly on my own. I don't need the help of all these other dunderheads over here. They're just going to slow me down. I get all the feeding and all the filling that I need when it's just me and the Lord communing together. That's not what Paul says. See, the truth of the matter is, I feel pretty good, well, sometimes I can feel pretty good about my growth and maturity in the Lord until I begin to rub shoulders with someone else in the church. And one of two things happen. Either me and that other person or a group of people, we, we, we're like sandpaper, right? We're, we're grading on each other. And I, and I think, man, I thought I was really loving and really patient. I thought I was so much like Jesus. Oh, how wrong I was. Right? I, listen, by way of illustration, I never knew how selfish I was until I got married and had kids. 
I could not believe how wicked I turned. You know what the problem is? The problem was not that marriage and parenting turned me into a wicked, selfish person. The problem was I was already wicked and selfish. I just didn't know it. And the Lord gives me a wife to help me see that and gives me kids to help me experience that. And He gives you to me and me to you so that we can see those things about each other as well so that you think, I've got it, I know, I'm steeped in the Scriptures. And then you come and you find someone who just devours the Scripture and you say, but I don't love the Word the way that he or she does. I need more of that. Or you think you love and show kindness the way that Jesus Himself would. Only He could do it as well as you until you see someone else who just knows how to put people at ease and you say, I thought I knew what it meant to care for someone, but that person knows how to care for someone. We need one another if we all are to grow in the fullness of Jesus Christ because no individual is capable of doing that on their own. You will never, ever become what God fully intends for you to be if you are not fully engaged with your local church congregation. It will not happen. You need other gifts that you don't have. You need other skills. You need people working on you, and you need the exercise of working your gifts for them. So my hope and my prayer is that one of the things that will characterize Edgewood as we continue to go forward is that as we continue to think about ourselves in terms of the picture that Scripture gives us, that we are this new covenant community who have been brought forth by the sacrifice of Christ, by the power of God's Word and His Holy Spirit, that the more that we internalize that, the more the Word washes over us and changes our thinking and our habits and our patterns, the more that that begins to, to break out in expression to one another. And the more that I get to share the fullness of Christ with you and you with me, the more encouraged we are to get more of that fullness because of how joyful and how delightful it is. And that we'll come to see that one of the things that God has done as a gift to us is to bring us and put us together so that we can see more of Him. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of our pride and arrogance that would cause us to think, to entertain the idea that we are sufficient on our own to be able to display the infinite fullness of Jesus Christ, to think that we are sufficient for those things. How shameful to think that we would be so prideful and arrogant. Father, for some of us, it may not be pride and arrogance. It could just simply be forgetfulness. 
or even just ignorance, we have not considered these things before. The way that you have assembled your church to display the fullness of Christ in all of his many forms and glories. Father, would you do here at Edgewood a work along the lines of what we see in Ephesians 4, that as your word continues to take root in our hearts and minds, that it would shape us and change us, and that in changing us, we would live differently. We would live as Christ himself, and that we would do so in fellowship with one another, so that as each and every member of this church does the works of service to one another, that people would be able to look at this gathering and see the beauty of Christ embodied in our midst. Do this, we ask, by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we would know that it's coming from you and not from ourselves. Amen. Let's stand. Blessed are the poor in spirit who are torn apart. Blessed are the persecuted and the pure in heart. Blessed are the people hungry for another start. For this is the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And all the people said amen. Whoa. Dismissed.